You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. We appreciate you joining us each and every week. Happy holidays to everyone out there. Before we get started with this week's episode, just a reminder, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with the show, everything we have going on. Also, reminder, since it is the holiday season, you're going to do a lot of your shopping online about our great partnership with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage there. Do all of your normal Amazon shopping that you do for your family, friends, loved ones, whatever it may be. You do your shopping that way through hazardground.com, clicking on the Amazon banner. We get a percentage of everything you spend, and we donate it right back to all the great organizations and charities you've heard here on the Hazard Ground podcast. So just by doing Christmas shopping with the Hazard Ground, you guys can help out veterans and veterans organizations all throughout America. What an easy way to do it. Once again, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon banner, do your shopping, and you'll be helping out veterans everywhere. What a good way to feel about yourself as the holiday season is in full swing. Also, if you're looking for some last-minute gift ideas for that reader in your family, go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the reading list banner at the top of the homepage. All of the books that have been featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast by some of our guests who have written books are there. Direct links for you guys to go and get those books and send some amazing authors, some amazing personal stories, even deeper than we've gotten here with guests on the Hazard Ground. It's a great gift for people, a great gift for that military member who loves reading about history, or even a non-military member who just wants to learn more about what war and combat and everything that we discuss here on the podcast is like these are great gifts for people so again hazardground.com the reading list banner at the top of the page will give you direct links right to all those books now on to this week's episode joining us now on the hazard ground podcast is a former a10 pilot welcome into the hazard ground podcast we appreciate you joining us each and every week happy holidays to everyone out there before we get started with this week's episode just a reminder follow us on all the social media sites facebook twitter and instagram at hazard ground at hazard ground podcast keep up with the show everything we have going on also reminder since it is the holiday season you're going to do a lot of your shopping online about our great partnership with amazon go to our website hazardground.com and click on the amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. there do all of your normal Amazon shopping that you do for your family, friends, loved ones, whatever it may be, you do your shopping that way through hazardground.com, clicking on the Amazon banner. We get a percentage of everything you spend and we donate it right back to all the great organizations and charities you've heard here on the Hazard Ground podcast. So just by doing Christmas shopping with the Hazard Ground, you guys can help out veterans and veterans organizations all throughout America. What an easy way to do it. Once again, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon banner, do your shopping, and you'll be helping out veterans everywhere. What a good way to feel about yourself as the holiday season is in full swing. Also, if you're looking for some last-minute gift ideas for that reader in your family, go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the reading list banner at the top of the homepage. All of the books that have been featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast by some of our guests who have written books are there. Direct links for you guys to go and get those books and send some amazing authors, some amazing personal stories, even deeper than we've gotten here with guests on the Hazard Ground. It's a great gift for people, a great gift for that military member who loves reading about history, or even a non-military member who just wants to learn more about what 
war and combat and everything that we discuss here in the podcast is like these are great gifts for people so again hazardground.com the reading list banner at the top of the page will give you direct links right to all those books now on to this week's episode she has over 375 hours of combat flight experience and went through an incredible tale of how her aircraft was blown up and shot up to pieces and she still managed to land it manually and in doing so was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. She is currently an instructor at the Air Force Academy. Her call sign is Killer Chick. She is Colonel Kim Campbell here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Ma'am, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. All right, we usually start back at the beginning. Uh, Listen, just reading the story of how you landed that A-10 is unreal, and looking at the pictures of it and how badly it was damaged, uh, I've never been a pilot, never been close, but I would imagine that's not less than optimal conditions, to say the least. So before we get to that day in Iraq uh, after the invasion, let's start back at the beginning, and how'd you get into the Air Force? Well, that's an interesting story. So uh, when I was in fifth grade, uh, I remember watching the Space Shuttle Challenger launch and then the accident that occurred afterwards where all of the astronauts lost their lives. And um, for whatever reason, something stuck with me that day in that I realized the astronauts died doing something that they felt was incredibly important and something that was bigger than them. And I went home from school that day and told my parents that I was going to be an astronaut. Um, And so then we kind of began the long process and discussions of um, how I might get to be an astronaut. And um, they brought up the idea of if I wanted to fly, uh, and I decided that that was the, the path that I wanted to take and decided that uh, I was going to go to join the Air Force and uh, become a pilot. That's interesting. I, I, was, I remember that day vividly. I think I was in third grade, and they had literally stopped class and rolled TVs into the classroom so we all could sit around and watch the whole thing happen. Yeah, And obviously, obviously the horror of what happened, I don't think at that point in time any of us really understood what had gone on. Uh, and and what the explosion meant, uh, it took a you know everybody a little while to figure it out, and then obviously, you know, you get the news, and we spent the the, the day that later on that afternoon and the day after talking about it all. But that was like a seminal moment for people in their late thirties and early forties growing up. Uh, you know, it's not the same as nine eleven, but certainly you remember exactly where you were when that when that Challenger exploded. Yes, I remember sitting in class and kind of you know obviously trying to process and understand what it meant. Uh, but we we talked about it. I, t- I had talked about it with my family, and something just hit me um, and stuck with me that I wanted to do something that was bigger than me, that was more important um, than just me, and um, decided that an astronaut path was the, the kind of my start for me that um, that got me to want to fly and want to join the Air Force, and um, and then it went from there. <laughs> So did I mean as you're going through middle school into high school and everything else was everything geared towards that? Absolutely. I decided I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. My dad had been an Air Force Academy grad, and so I knew a little bit from him. Uh, Quite honestly, I'm not sure he wanted me to come here initially um, because he just, you know, as being his little girl and knowing that the Academy is a pretty tough place to go. um, But he, um, you know, I think he realized pretty quickly that I had made my decision up, and then he just, um, he helped me and my entire time middle school and high school is really geared towards getting accepted to the Air Force Academy and being ready, ready both physically um, and academically to come to the Academy and excel. Did any of your friends think it was weird? Uh, no, you know, I think they just, I, it, it's something that I'd wanted for so long. They were, they just kind of realized that that was me. That was what I did. And I, you know, I, a very different path than most of my friends. 
Um, but they were, you know, now still, we're still friends and are incredibly proud of the path that I've taken. Did you, were you doing anything different at the time? Was it just studying, getting good grades or were you actually like physically training and running and, and doing all those things as well? Both. I spent um, quite a bit of time. I, I did cross country uh, track and soccer in high school. And so I wasn't, you know, the upper body strength was something that I needed to work on. And so my dad um, installed a pull-up bar in the bathroom so that I could work on upper body strength. <laughs> um, we bought combat boots and we would go running in combat boots um, just to, you know, know how that feels. And so he really just got me, got me ready and prepared. And um, it was a lot of fun. It was something fun for us to do together. And, um, you know, I was able to come here and not have a problem with any of the physical events. And, and um, on the academic side, it was just kind of preparing through high school and being ready for the, the high level of classes that happen here. Looking back on it, do you think you would have had such an easy time at the academy if you didn't have your dad, somebody who went there and, and put you through all that stuff? Do you still think you would have done it? Uh, you know, I probably would have done it. I may not have done as well. It's, it's amazing when you, when you go to, and I'm sure this is probably the same for any military organization. And when you go to your first basic training, if you can, if you can hang with everybody, um, physically, then that takes care of all, you know, 80% of the time. If you can just, if you can keep up on the runs, you can do the push-ups, the pull-ups, the sit-ups and do all those things. Um, then you're less likely to get yelled at, which is a key key thing to succeed and, and make you want to be there. Yeah, right, 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 right with uh, be on time and in the right uniform. The physical stuff yes. is really <laughs> it's like ninety percent of what we do in the military. If you got those stuff, those things down, everything becomes a little bit easier after the fact. Right. Okay, so take us to the end of high school uh, and, and the process of applying for the academy and and getting in and what that was like. So I um, got my. Um, my um, acceptance to the academy uh, very late. I was actually I actually got a letter initially saying that I was not accepted uh, to the academy. Wow! Uh, that I was qualified, but that there were other people that just were more qualified than me. And part of that was I struggled with my SAT scores. I just for whatever reason didn't test well. Took them I think six times. Got the same score about six times, and finally went and took the ACT very late in the game and realized that that. I could take that test a little bit better. Um, so that in that sense, that's where I struggled to be competitive. Um, so I got a, a letter saying that I wasn't, um, that, you know, that I wasn't going to be accepted to the Academy. I was incredibly disappointed. Uh, luckily had a very good air liaison officer, um, to kind of go through that with me. And he said, don't give up. He said, write a letter to the Academy every week, tell them the things you've done to improve. And so I did every week I would, you know, as silly as it was, I'd tell them I got an A on a test or I could do 10 more push-ups you know, whatever it took, it just really to let them know that I was still interested. Uh, and then I finally got my uh, acceptance letter uh, in early June, and I think reported to the academy at the end of June. So I only had really a couple weeks to really know that I was going to the academy. Level of pride you felt when that acceptance letter came through? Uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was finally like, you know, I, I had made other plans to go to another school with ROTC, and, but it, my heart was at the academy. And so getting that letter, I remember getting it in the mail and driving uh, back to high school and showing all my friends and interrupting their classes to show them. But I think <laughs> everybody was really excited for me, too. And, and nobody thought like, oh, my God, you're crazy. Like, what are you doing this for? Oh, yeah. There were people that, you know, I think, you know, when I'm my, um, you know, we're looking at options of places that I could have gone to school and they're like, wow, you really want to go through that? huh?" Absolutely. 
Did anybody at that point discourage you about it or talk to you about it because you were a female saying that it wasn't the best route for you or you couldn't do it? No, I never, really? you know, which is, yeah, I know. And I mean, I graduated from the academy 20 plus years ago. So, I mean, we're, we're talking times were different then. Um, at the time we had, I think there were about 10 to 12% women in the class. And so I was definitely a minority, but I don't remember hearing anything of the sort. My dad never even mentioned it to me. I mean, I, you know, it was just not, just wasn't in the conversation. It was just about preparing and being ready to go. So you, your boots on ground at the Air Force Academy, was it all you expected it to be? I think it was. I didn't, I, I think, um, you know, I don't, um, I, I felt very prepared for it. I had done civil air patrol as a, as a, um, in middle school and high school as well. So I kind of understood the, you know, wearing a uniform military thing. I'd gone to civil air patrol encampments where they, where they do yell at you. So it wasn't a, just what really wasn't too much of a shock for me. It was about what I expected. I think the hard part became once we kind of got through basic training in the school year, academic year started and you realize just how busy life is and how much there is to do and how hard academics are. You know, everybody was pretty much rock stars in high school and you get here and you're all pretty much average except for the few that just seem to excel on the academic side. So that was a struggle, really trying to balance all the time, you know, all the things we had to do and, and really deal with time management. Now, all throughout high school, you're training in your mind to be a pilot. When you get to the Air Force Academy, Everybody wants to be a pilot, but not everybody can be a pilot. The needs of the Air Force sometimes, you know, take precedence. And obviously how you test and how you score against other people. Um, did you get a sense of looking around and see everybody kind of as competition in that aspect? It, you know, there it doesn't feel like competition where you're here. I think everybody knows it and you're all trying to do the best you can. Uh, but you're all supporting each other and studying together and working together. So it's, yes, it's a competition. It's just kind of one of those things, though. You you all know it's based on order of merit and, and how well you do uh, is really how you pick your assignment. Um, but that's throughout, that's been throughout my Air Force career. So that's, that's nothing new. And um, somehow we just all figure it out. We work together as a team, knowing that in the end, the people that do better are going to get their, the assignment of choice. Did you at any point feel like it wasn't going to happen, that, you, that your chances of being a pilot were, were diminishing? <laughs> um, only my senior year when I um, had a, I did my medical screening and um, was told that I was not only not able to be a pilot, but that I wasn't going to be commissioned. Really? Um, yeah. So that was a bit of a surprise. And, uh, you know, worked through that, worked through the medical process, was able to get an exception to policy, um, obviously able to get commissioned. And um, they decided that uh, that I could go uh, be a pilot. And uh, I go back every few years to get checked out uh, to make sure everything's going OK. But uh, I kind of set the, the stage for several people for this medical condition to go fly and um, so it, that was, uh, but that was a moment where everything I had worked for and being at the Academy for almost four years, uh, I was crushed for a good period of time until it got worked out. Did it uh, because I really, go ahead, ma'am. I'm sorry. I was just say it really felt like everything that I had worked for all of a sudden and everything that I wanted, you know, my goals and dreams were kind of falling apart in front of me for something that, you know, that I was born with never knew uh, and was discovered during my pilot's uh, medical screening. Did it feel like that same rejection letter that came originally from the Air Force Academy was kind of repeating itself again? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a really good way to put it. You know, I felt like you know, once again, I just, you know, I had a very clear goal and objective of what I wanted my life to be. 
and, you know, it felt kind of like I just got punched about, you know, just totally caught off guard um, of, you know, wow, now I'm going to have to come up with something totally new and a different path in life. And, you know, I'd worked through that. It was several weeks, maybe months. I don't remember exactly, but it, it took a while for the process to work out. And so it was a struggle. It was definitely a struggle, but, you know, you have support from people here. I had my family support and I came up with a new plan uh, and then felt very lucky to get the exception to policy to, to go to pilot training. When do you commission, you know, month and year kind of time frame? Uh, I got May of 1997. Okay. All right. So we are, we are definitively pre nine 11. Um, yes. obviously you're going right to active duty though. This is what you're doing. And while well, you're getting your, obviously you go to flight school first, but, um, you're doing all that. Um, as far as where you were headed next in your career, give me the, the circumstances there. Uh, so I um, actually got an, uh, selected to go to graduate school on a Marshall scholarship. Oh, so wow. I spent two years after graduating from the Air Force Academy in London, uh, getting a getting my master's degrees. I did two uh, different degrees in the two years that I was there, and was able to spend two years at school. One getting an MBA, and one getting a um, uh, doing a, a degree in uh, international security studies. So did you feel like that was just delaying you from getting, you know, behind the controls of, of a plane? Uh, yes, there was that. There was that. Um, it, it was a tough decision because, you know, I really wanted to go fly. Um, but this opportunity to go to grad school came up and I thought, you know, how, you know, pretty hard to turn down two years to go study in London. Uh, you know, just something different and a different experience. But I knew that my pilot slot was on hold, so that I knew that when I was done with that, I could go back to to go back to go fly, uh, and it was a it was an awesome experience, and it was nice to get it done and get that out of the way, and then I could really just focus on my flying career once I got started. You know, you probably didn't think about it then, but knowing what you know now, after twenty years in the service, you know, yeah, sure, we'll hold your pilot spot, and you know, that's a dangerous game to play because. Again, needs of the Air Force, needs of the military, and everything else can come along, and they can easily yank that 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 you know slot in pilot school away. Was there ever any fear of that, or you didn't even think it was going to happen? Uh, I just I didn't think it was going to happen. I, maybe I was too optimistic at the time. Maybe <laughs> twenty years looking back, I, you know, I we do that a lot here at the Air Force Academy, though, where cadets get their their um, assignments held be, while they go to grad school. And then, you know, they eventually go, you know, go back to their assignment that they were given. But you're right. You know, things can change. Things can happen. And I suppose it was a it was definitely a risk. But I also felt like, you know, my, my ultimate goal at the time was still to be an astronaut. And so getting my degree was uh, also very important. OK, th- that makes um, sense. And getting that done. So there, and, there was that as well. And the, the only reason I ask is because you had these two major obstacles at this point in time that almost crushed everything. And so I, I can only imagine you must have been chomping at the bit to actually just get into flight school and do that because without that, this whole thing's a non-starter, right? Yeah, and I will tell you, it was a struggle. Even you know, sitting in London, what, listening to all my friends get their, you know, get their assignments, going to fly F-16s, A-10s. You know, they're they're out there getting getting the job done already, and I'm still sitting there in grad school, and I just had to keep telling myself, you know, this is. This is a good path, you know. This is it is okay to take this time to get the degree, uh, and then go. And, and in all reality, by the time I got to uh, pilot training and then my assignment, and in A tens, um, I I caught up. There was there wasn't any any problem about feeling left behind. Did you have a preference of what uh, what aircraft you wanted? 
I didn't uh, initially when I started pilot training, but once I started flying, I realized that the formation work and the air-to-air work was, you know, it was cool, but flying low level and, um, you know, fast, uh, close to the ground was something that was fun for me and I enjoyed it. Um, And then when you start learning more about the missions of the different airplanes, I really, there's something about close air support and the mission of the A-10 that just stuck with me. The fact that you go out there and your entire focus is saving lives of our brothers and sisters on the ground, like that to me was the ultimate mission. And so that's why I like the A-10. Forgive, I'm I'm not familiar with Air Force after nearly 20 years as an Army puke, but when you're doing that mission that's close air support, close to the ground, that seems counter to being an astronaut, which is way high up above that. Did that sort of determine a career path for you afterwards? Did that take you out of the astronaut game? Uh, You know, it didn't really, you know, there was a point in time where I had to make a decision and I had been flying, I had flown the A-10 for several years, had flown in combat. And I just decided that I love flying the A-10 and I didn't want to give it up. And um, I really the path for me at that point changed, which is, you know, it's one of those moments where you realize, wow, I've had this goal for so long. Um, but I realized that I loved flying the A-10 and I didn't, I didn't want to quit. I didn't want to give it up. And if I wanted to go to the astronaut path, I would have. Um, and for, you know, also for family reasons, we just decided we, we were on a good path, uh, together. And, um, I stuck with flying the A-10 and don't regret it. Not one bit. So where are you on 9-11? Uh, so September 11, 2001, I was uh, in A-10 training at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. Um, you know, as, as we all do, we remember that moment very clearly. I was actually sleeping because we were um, on night crew rest because we were flying night missions and got a phone call and remember being kind of pissed off that someone had broke my crew rest, kind of waking up in the in the morning. And, um, and uh, one of my classmates, and he said, Kim, turn on the TV. I was like, what are you talking about? And I turned it on uh, and saw the one of the towers burning, and shortly thereafter watched the second plane impact the tower. And you know, I think, I think at that point you realize it's not an accident. I think we realized we were under attack, and I think very quickly we figured out that our lives, as kind of where we were in our careers as an Air Force officer and as an A-10 pilot, were probably going to change pretty dram- dramatically based on the response that the United States would take. Did you feel at that point in time, I know you said it would change, but were you thinking specifically combat? Um, yes, I think I, we, you know, we were grounded, all the, uh, all the aircraft initially were grounded, but we went into the squadron and I think we were all talking about going to war. We kind of felt like this was it. Um, and, you know, all, we're all sitting around and looking at each other because we're still in training and, you know, hoping that we can get our training done and, and go out and do what we need to do. You know, so often, and I can recall it too in the early stages of my career when you talk about, you know, going through school and everything else and in the pre-9-11 world, they talk about, well, this is how it goes in combat and this is what happens in combat. And it seems like such a notional fantasy at that point in time uh, when you have to flip that switch and all of a sudden combat becomes real and, and the specter of it becomes real. Did you feel like you weren't ready for combat? Did you feel like, you know, you needed more or was this one of the things at the moment you felt like, okay, let's go, I'm ready to do this? Um, you know, I think you're so focused on just being a good pilot. You kind of forget about the, what that actually means. You focus on your mission and being a good pilot and how do you execute the mission? Um, you know, once you 
arrive in the location where you're, you know, once we actually deployed, um, I think it sunk in. I will tell you the moment it sunk in was when my squadron commanders looked at all of us and said, none of you are flying until I get letters that you write home to your families in case you don't come back and you will not step out into an aircraft until I get that letter. Really? Yes. And so that for us was, you know, all of a sudden kind of the switch, you know, we had, we showed up in Kuwait. We, there were lots of airplanes. We kind of knew there was this talk of war, but until you make yourself sit down and write a letter to your family, um, that for us, I think put everybody in this mindset of like, well, this is, uh, this is the real deal. You know, this is, it's, it might be go time. I'm curious about this. Do you remember what you wrote? Did you write just one letter for everybody? Did you write specific letters for specific people? Do you remember any of that? I do. I wrote a letter to my husband. I wrote a letter to my brother, who's eight years younger than me, and I wrote a letter to my parents. Um, and I have the letters because he, our squadron commander, gave them back to us. But I don't, I don't remember what I wrote. And I you've never gone back and them. read them? No. <laughs> really. Never even had an inkling to go back and say, what was I thinking at that point in time? Yeah, I, you know, they're in there. I think, I think someday I might, but uh, right now I, they, they're just in my box of things that I deployed with. That is amazing. I, I mean, I, you know, in con- you always thought about writing that letter, but sitting down and actually doing it is a lot tougher. Like, for me, it was making out the will. You know, like I'm a 24, yeah. or 25-year-old kid making out a will. I have nothing in this world, right? I'm not married at the time. You know, you were, obviously. It's different, but I'm not married. I don't have any kids. What am I making out a will for? What am I giving away my couch? Like, you know, but yeah. <laughs> in the same respect, you're sitting here, you start to realize that this is like a real adult thing that you have to do. And then you have to recognize what the, what you think the world around you is going to look like if you're gone and if you're not there yeah. and mortality becomes a, a very real thing. And I think that's what it did for us. It, it put us all in this mindset and you know, I understand why I did it. He, you know, we had, you know, it. we sat in Kuwait for several weeks, and so it was kind of, you know, we're joking and hanging out and talking about maybe going to war or not, not really sure what's going to happen. And and uh, it really put us in perspective of the risks and um, what we were about to go do. All right, so you're in Kuwait, uh, what, the latter part of 2001, early part of 2002, or? Uh, no, so the, Kuwait was 2003. Okay. Um, we had uh, done Afghanistan prior to this in uh, 2002. Okay, so you had flown in Afghanistan prior to, to going to Iraq? I did, yeah. So right once I, after 9-11 and after I finished up my A-10 training, I uh, went to uh, Pope Air Force Base where my assignment was, and uh, we deployed to Afghanistan in, uh, in about mid-2002 and uh, deplo- deployed in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. All right, take me through your first combat flight mission. Um, you've had hours of training, hundreds of hours of training, doing all this mm-hmm. stuff, and you've been through all the lectures, and again, you speculate what combat is like and everything else, but as you well know, obviously through your experience, what you train for and what you talk about ahead of time are usually vastly different from what you encounter. Um, do you remember that first mission and what it was like and what you had to do? Yeah, I do remember my first mission, and quite honestly, it was a bit anticlimactic <laughs> in terms of we flew from we flew from Kuwait all the way to Afghanistan. So it was a very long first combat mission. Once we crossed into, um, once we crossed into Afghanistan, we had already been flying for four or five hours. Just the A-10 is slow and it takes some time to get places. We had refueled several times. Uh, so we had flown into Afghanistan and, and did some work supporting, um, some troops on the ground, but we did not employ. We were, um, pretty much just working in an escort capacity for a convoy 
and we were there if they needed us, um, but they didn't, which was a good thing. Um, but that was my very first mission was just doing combat, uh, you know, kind of support for the, the team that was um, in a convoy going through the terrain and uh, probably a good first mission and far of just realizing and recognizing, you know, flying into Afghanistan the first time was eye opening because the, the terrain is so oh, extreme. Yeah, yeah. And so just trying to figure that out and figure out how you would employ and do things a little bit differently and even trying to follow a convoy through the through the mountains with weather that was challenging enough. And so it was just, um, it was, you know, that we did a couple hour support for that and looking out ahead of the convoy, just making sure that there was nothing in their way. Um, and then handed off to another, another, another set of airplanes and then landed in Afghanistan. So that was my first mission. It was, uh, fairly benign in terms of, uh, close air support, but still, you know, good to be in the fight, if you will. Do you get a chance on that first deployment in Afghanistan to engage the enemy at all? Uh, no, uh, my first experience in Afghanistan, we were, we rotated through, um, uh, really on a monthly basis, um, sw- swapping out with our, uh, uh, other, um, A-10 pilots that were in Kuwait. We were doing, uh, Operation Southern Watch at the same time. And, uh, most of, most of the stuff that I did was convoy escort. Um, we did, um, also some, we work with special forces and did when they did some night, um, infills into an area, we would drop illumination rounds for them, but not, not any major combat. And this was, uh, you know, late mid to late 2002. Okay. So after that, uh, deployment ends, uh, take me up to the time for the invasion in Iraq that you guys, that, that deployment, and that mission. Yeah, so we came home from Afghanistan and pretty there, uh, you know, pretty quickly after started ramping up for Iraq. Um, you know, we'd been home for, you know, several months, but trying to get in the pre-deployment phase again. Uh, I also got the uh, opportunity, if you will, to go to squadron officer school. This was early 2003. My husband and I both got um, selected to go to squadron officer school at Maxwell Air Force Base. And as we were there, we could see the writing on the wall just as far as what was happening. And we were so afraid that we were going to be left behind at Maxwell while our squadrons deployed uh, to Iraqi freedom. Uh, And thankfully, I think we got home at the end of February and left a week later uh, to go to to, uh, Iraq. Uh, And so we left, uh, my squadron left for Iraq. Uh, We left at the very end of February and uh, early March arrived in Kuwait. Um, and pretty amazing to land in Kuwait. Um, several, several other units were already there, um, and the ramp was just lined with A-10s uh, as far as you could see. Uh, and it was pretty impressive because I had been to Kuwait before, and I, we had, in supporting Operation Southern Watch, it didn't look anything like this. And now we're talking the ramp is lined with all sorts of fighter aircraft. Uh, Marines were there as well. It was. Uh, we recognized this was different. Yeah, I mean, it's when you when you get the totality of the American might uh, and the military capacity that we have. It's a, uh, as you said, pretty awe inspiring to say the least. Um, when do you actually uh, have to start flying into Baghdad? I mean, it kicks off on March twentieth, two thousand three. Um, so, are you there for that initial insertion or no? Yes. So um, we um, initially supported the push um, from Kuwait to Baghdad. I remember a couple of first sorties in Iraq just watching this line, the convoy of, of tanks and vehicles going from Kuwait to Iraq. And it's it was impressive at the speed that it moved. I don't think we any of us anticipated 
um, one, the lack of resistance initially and just the speed that, that the Army and Marines would both move out. But we were there to support and provide close air support, and there wasn't a lot of engagement of enemy forces. Um, you know, there was hit or miss here or there, depending upon if you were supporting the Army or the Marines and based on the resistance that they got. But it really wasn't until we got up towards Baghdad uh, where really the resistance and the, the threat level increased significantly. All right. So let's talk about April 7th, 2003. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is that a normal morning for you? Take me through the events leading up to the time that you have to take off and what your mission was. Yeah. So the um, on in really early April, it, the like I said, we are the Army and Marines were uh, in Baghdad. Uh, the, the fights, uh, kind of the firefights had increased significantly. The amount of close air support that we would have to provide increased. And so uh, what we were doing was we would fly from Kuwait up to Baghdad. We would refuel before we got there. And then we would go to what we called a, a cast stack, a close air support stack. And all this was was basically points around Baghdad, surrounding Baghdad, where they would have airplanes stacked up. Uh, to provide close air support. So when you're at the bottom of the stack, it was your turn to go, or depending upon the type of the aircraft they would need, uh, they would call for you to to go do close air support. And so that was April 7, 2003. Normal morning for us. We we you know woke up. It was an early mission. We went and talked to um, both our uh, Army and Marine detachment that were there to get a feel for what they were doing on the ground and what the what the battles were consisting of, and and then we went to launch, and it's a good hour trip um, in the Na-10 from Kuwait to Baghdad, so we had a lot of time to talk about what we might do, uh, and then we, as we're approaching Baghdad, the weather is just horrible. I mean, it's uh, to the point where the tops are about 20,000 feet, the bottoms we're not we're not even sure because we can't see the ground below, and we're struggling to find our tanker to to fill up and get gas. We finally find the tanker and get gas. Uh, but we're talking about the fact that we don't even think we're going to be used this day because um, it's just the weather's not great. We're not sure we can get below the weather. And, um, and so in this process, though, you know, as you're dissecting all this stuff and figuring out information, I mean, kind of prioritize for me what's going through your head and what's the most important thing you're worried about. And, and uh, you know, just I'm, I'm trying to get the mind frame of the mindset of the whole thing. Yeah, so I mean, we're we're struggling with the weather. So the weather is we're trying to figure out how we're going to employ with that. We're kind of talking through that. Uh, we're also talking about the threat laydown that has been presented to us by our intelligence team that that is talking about all the the missiles and um, anti-aircraft artillery that the Iraqis have surrounding Baghdad. So a lot of it is kind of looking at where we're at, how we might employ. And um, and then we get the call that uh, initially is just a, a call that wants us, uh, they tasked us to go look at some tanks and vehicles they thought might be acting as a command post. And we're talking a little bit back and forth, plotting the targets on our map or the location on the map and, and looking at the threat and trying to really talking about the weather. Are we going to be able to see anything at all? And that's, uh, so we start proceeding to those coordinates and then that location, really just trying to figure out how we're going to how we're going to do this, uh, and that's when we get the call on the radio uh, from one of the ground controllers, uh, which we now call Joint Terminal Attack Controllers, JTACs, and he says, my guys are taking fire. We need immediate assistance. And for us, that's that's go time. That's, you know, for a pilot, that means, for me, you know, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up, right. the adrenaline's pumping, 
and we're it's go time for us. Now, was this your first technical technically engagement of the enemy at this point? No, I had done okay. I had done some weapons delivery before that, but this was my first troops in contact. So I had done I had done some close air support where we were you know taking out some buildings where they you know they gotcha. thought okay. enemy was located, but nothing to the the threat the risk was very different in this situation. All right, so you get the call that troops are in contact. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? Uh, how fast can we get there is really, you know, we need to get there now is really kind of the first thought is how, how can we get there as quickly as we can to help these guys out? And um, at that point, we're, we're pretty close to the location already. We had plotted it on the map. We're fairly close by. We're starting to see a little bit of the ground below. Um, and so we talk about a plan. We kind of come up with a plan that we're going to fly right over the target area and then look and see if we can find some holes through the weather to get down below the weather. And we see um, so, some breaks in the clouds. And so we, we, uh, we you know, we're at this point we're concerned. We got to find the friendlies. We got to figure out where they're at, and then we got to find the enemy location. And and, and ma'am, all this you, is happening yeah. actually while in flight, correct? Oh yeah, this okay. is this right. is while we're flying. And uh, so the the ground controller tells us, he said, look, I got friendlies on the west side of the Tigris River. Uh, and then we've got members of the Iraqi Republican Guard. They're on the east side of the Tigris River. They're hiding underneath an overpass and they're shooting rocket propelled grenades into my guys. And so that was, that was what we knew uh, going into this. And uh, so my flight lead goes down below the weather. He finds a hole and he tells me, all right, you come down below the weather uh, I'll be on the west side of the river. You stay on the east side. And he said, and keep your jet moving. And that really should have been my first indication that something was different. Uh, we generally try to keep our jet maneuverable, just prevents us from getting hit with small arms fire and the like. Um, but as soon as I got below the weather, I could see the Tigris River very clearly. It was a very identifiable feature where our friendlies were on the west side and Republican Guard was on the east side under an overpass. I couldn't see them, but I could see the bridge, and I could see the overpass where they were at. Um, but almost immediately, I could see this firefight going across the river. And that was a first for me to see just flashes going across the river, um, you know, talking to the guys on the radio, uh, listening to them talk about where they're taking fire from. And then very quickly, I also started to see puffs of smoke coming up around me. Um, you know, white puffs, gray puffs of smoke, some flashes, and that's when I realized they're shooting at us too. Uh, and so that put things in perspective a bit. When when that happens, uh, the first thing, you, obviously, you're recognizing that you're taking enemy fire. But um, is there fear at that point? Is it just adrenaline? Do you just training kick in? Where is your head? I think for me, um, you know, we're so focused on supporting the the guys on the ground that it's training. It's, you remember, you know, you talk about these scenarios, you plan for these scenarios and you practice them. Um, it's totally different when you're actually getting shot at as, as opposed to simulated right. getting shot at. But I think, you know, you really just focus on the task at hand. And for us, that's what we did. We talked about how we were going to get in and shoot Iraqi Republican guard underneath an overpass, how we could keep our jet moving. Um, so we weren't as predictable and we plan to do a couple passes um, and put down both 30 millimeter Gatling gun and high explosive rockets down on the enemy location, um, and and that we would then kind of climb up and reassess. Um, but the whole plan was to kind of keep our jet moving. We'd get our nose underneath the, the the nose of the airplane 
get down low so we could get underneath this overpass. When I say overpass, think urban city, any downtown environment you're in where a bridge goes across the river, this is a completely urban environment. And regular cars are driving across the bridge at this point. And so we're really focused on really just trying to make sure we're very accurate with our fire to get it underneath the bridge um, and not damage any of the civilian infrastructure around us. All right. Let, let me pause on a couple of things here because sure. there's a lot to digest. You seem to present that the conversations that are going on between pilots are very matter of fact. I can tell you from experience, when bullets start flying, conversation and communication is the first thing that goes out the window just by the nature of what's going on, and it becomes very chaotic. But you seem to have this calm about these conversations as if they were very routine. Was it that way or was there chaos? Um, You know, it was a little bit of both. I mean, there was the... I think, you know, when you listen back to the audio tapes of this, uh, the the inflection in our voices definitely rise. I mean, we are definitely, there's definitely a lot going on. It's a very quick conversation back and forth about what we're seeing and what we have to do. And we're trying to do it all very quickly because we re- recognize, one, there's a risk to the troops on the ground that we were there to support, but we also recognize the risk to us. And so we're trying to balance that. But this is what we train to do. For an A-10 pilot, this is our bread and butter. I mean, this is what we do. And so we try to remain as calm as you can and make it look as much like training as you can, but also understand the risk at the same time. Yeah, just uh, you're saying it and I hear it. I just, in my head, just from personal experience, I'm like, it doesn't ever really work that way. But uh, it it might be different in aircraft. I, I don't know. I mean, Usually when there's people on the ground and, you know, there's two or three people with radios, everything gets very hectic and, and uh, it's hard to decipher who's really talking at certain things. All you're trying to do is focus on, you know, the enemy and where the fire is coming from. But, uh, um, you know, the, the, the aircraft of it is fascinating to me because you're moving literally faster than sometimes the battle does, right? Right. And and for us, you know, it's we've got we're t- right now we've shut everybody out as far as the only people we are talking to is the controller on the ground and then the two of us, and so we try to shut everything else out. We kind of make the immediate call back to um, the controlling agency to let them know kind of the firefight that we're in, but that's it. And then we shut all of that out, and our focus is on the guys on the ground. Any reservations about? and I assume it's a button inside the aircraft, but hitting the button to fire back on the enemy. Um, Any pause, any, you know, just sort of like, wow, everything's going to be different after this kind of deal? No, not at all. I, you know, (laughs) these are, these are bad people that have done horrible things and they're trying to take out Americans. Like in my mind, there's no, there's no hesitation no concern. Um, it is about saving American lives and, and letting and getting Americans home safely. That was it. When you reflect back on it, any sort of those feelings that, you know, are you different now after you've done that mission? Uh, I'm incredibly different from the mission. That well, I yeah, I mean, I just meant, I meant from the firing aspect. I know obviously yeah. everything else we'll get to in a second, but from the, from um, the standpoint of, of pulling the trigger, because it's something we talk about a lot here on the podcast, man, simply that, you know, yeah. look, combat's unforgiving and it's either you or them and you're taking care of the guy next to you. But still, the decision to fire a weapon at somebody is in and of itself, you know, life altering. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the difference in an airplane and from being on the ground and I don't know what being on the ground is like, but it's a little bit more sterile. I, um, I would think so. Yeah, it's there's less personal. Did- 
Right. You're not as close. Uh, you don't see the immediate aftermath. Um, and so I think in that sense, it's a little bit different, but I, you know, for me, it was just, there was no hesitation. And I, I, I look back at it and don't look at it as killing the enemy. I look back at it as on saving American lives. Good way to look at it. All right, let's return back to, you recognize you're taking enemy fire. When do you recognize, or do you know exactly when you've been hit? Uh, yeah, I know immediately. <laughs> uh, so our, our, um, we had done a couple passes each. In fact, at this point, I had done, I had, um, I had done a rocket pass, and we were actually talking uh, on the radio about it's time to climb up. We need to get some energy back because at this point, we have come to this fight fully loaded. We have a full load of gun. We have bombs. We have missiles. We are full of gas. We're heavy. And an A-10 heavy down low trying to climb back up to altitude um, you know, is, is, is difficult. You know, we call ourselves a pig for a reason. It's, it's difficult to climb back up. So we're trying to get our energy back. We're talking about climbing back up um, to get above kind of the immediate firefight and reassess how our guys on the ground are doing. And um, I, so I'm, I have come off target at this point and in a left-hand turn, and I feel and hear the loud explosion at the back of the airplane. And I know immediately I've been hit. Um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind. It's I guess I could equate it to like getting rear-ended at high speed. Um, sure. You just it, it completely dumps the airplane nose low, uh, and immediately the, the airplane is not responding. So I'm moving the stick. Nothing is happening. I'm looking at Baghdad below through my cockpit, recognizing that, I don't want to eject because this is where I've just been strafing and firing rockets on the enemy. Um, you know, all these things, this is, again, these are like matters of seconds, but these things are going through my mind. Um, you know, I'm, I, there's flashing lights in front of me on my master caution panel. There's lights um, that are telling me that, you know, obviously there's something wrong with the airplane. I'm trying to do the quick assessment of all, all of my gauges and I look down at our caution panel and see that I've got lights for hydraulics, and right above that are my hydraulic gauges, and I look at them, and they're both at zero. Uh, for an A-10, that means you know it's not going to fly unless you can switch it into this backup system that we have. And so uh, without thinking, it's, you know, it's automatic reaction. I move the switch to manual reversion, um, and now the jet finally starts responding to my control input. Um, at some point I make a call on the radio and tell my flight lead that I've been hit. And now it's just really trying to get the airplane under control. Um, trying, I'm trying to climb that the airplane's not climbing very well. Um, my flight lead at this point, when you want to talk chaos, now the radios, you know, we're trying to tell the guys on the ground we've been hit. He's trying to direct me. And all I can do is just try to fly the airplane. Um, that is about all the brain bites I have. And so he tells me to climb and go west because he's thinking I'm going to have to eject and hopefully can eject over the friendlies. And um, I uh, tell him that I can't climb. I just am struggling to climb. And so I emergency jettison all of the ordnance off the airplane. Um, and it goes down uh, so that I can get some lift and start climbing again. And, uh, and then really just trying to get the airplane maneuvering and climbing out and away from Baghdad is my first priority. Uh, and it is an incredible relief, um, to say the least, when I flip that switch and the jet starts maneuvering and it works exactly like it's supposed to. Okay, let, let me get through a couple of things here. I, I'm fascinated by this uh, just on a pure academic level. But um, do you know what you're hit with or you just know you're hit? 
No, I, unfortunately, we never saw it coming. Um, neither of us saw. We believe, you know, looking back now, we believe it's a, a missile based on the size of the impact. But whatever it was hit the back of the airplane, um, which is how it kind of dumped my nose low. And it hit the back. It's called the horizontal stabilizer on the right side. Um, it, it impacted there and then sent shrapnel into the airplane, into the fuselage and tail, the engine. Oh, wow. Uh, and so it dumped the hydraulics instantly. Okay, and I'm looking at the pictures, and, I mean, hundreds of bullet holes across this thing with small arms fire. Did, do you feel those? Do you know that happens or no? No, and there, there's still some assessment. Um, you know, that, uh, they think most of that was probably shrapnel versus small arms fire. Oh, really? Yeah, so that the, when the missile exploded, it sent shrapnel. And so all those holes that you see, uh, they believe are shrapnel from the missile. They look too bullet-like to not be a bullet hole. I mean, it's very yeah, circular. Yeah, and there, you know? <laughs> it's possible there could be some of that in there. Unfortunately, you know, at the time, we weren't sending teams to go assess what we got hit with. They're just the gotcha. only people that could come into Kuwait were people that were warfighters. Uh, and so the team that was there to try to assess it, we just never had anybody able to take a look at it. Any moment of fear when you realize the aircraft is not responding? Uh, there were a lot of moments of fear. You know, I people asked at the time, like right when I got back, they're like, were you scared? And I thought, no, you know, I just, you know, it was just reaction. You know, I go back and listen to the audio again. I can hear in my voice, I'm, I'm scared. But yeah, it was fear of uh, ejecting in Baghdad. I mean, the thought, you know, the thought of what could happen is horrible. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and so there was a lot of fear at that immediate moment, just, you know, not not wanting to eject right where you're strafing the enemy. And then, you know, then it's, you know, then you just try to compartmentalize and kind of just focus on the task at hand of flying. Um, but then even after that is the fear, once we got out of Baghdad, now it's the fear of what next? What am I going to do with this airplane? Um, and the fear of trying to land, the fear of making a decision and making a wrong decision about trying to land or eject once I got to friendly territory. So, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think it is, it's scary. It's terrifying, quite honestly, but it's what you do with that fear in those moments. That's really what it comes down to. You said you dumped all the ordnance. Uh, am I yeah. being naive and thinking that when you dump it, it still explodes? Uh, no, it dumps, it, it actually jettisons safe. Okay. All we, right. We jettison it. So. All right. Uh, so, you, 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 at what point in time do you breathe a little bit easier, realizing that okay, the plane is responding. Uh, I, I feel like I have control over the situation. I don't think I breathed a little easier until I got out of Baghdad. You know, in my mind, if I could just get out of Baghdad, if I had to eject, my chances of survival or escape would be much greater if I could just get myself out of Baghdad and. Um, Keep in mind, we still have this weather deck. So once I got above the weather, I just felt a little bit better. I felt like for the most part, they were shooting at us based on seeing us. And so even as we were trying to get out of Baghdad, they were still shooting at us. And so, you know, trying to keep the jet maneuvering in manual reversion, which, oh, by the way, is like driving a dump truck without power steering. Like it's not, this isn't easy. It's, it was incredibly difficult to just try to get the jet to maneuver um, and so just, you know, fear of getting hit again. And so once we got above the weather and slightly out of Baghdad, it was, I think that was my first kind of, okay, I have at least made it here. I'm, you know? en I'm envisioning you, you know, 
mentally going through all these checks and goes in the situation, but at the same time, you keep like looking at that eject button as if to say, you know, I'm going to reach a point of critical mass here where I have to hit this thing or uh, things, you know, I, I might not make it out alive. How close were you to at any point in time hitting the eject button? Were you staring at it? Were you looking at it? Or just you were saying, I'm not, I'm not ejecting over here. I, I need to get out of here first. Um, you know, I think I looked, so there are ejection handles in our seat. And so you have to pull, you pull both of them at the same time, right. but instantly the seat goes. And, you know, I remember looking at them and thinking, oh, you know, I don't want to use those. I really, you know, I, there's gotta be a way I can get this jet flying. And again, this is matters of seconds that sure, we're talking yeah, about here yeah. in the decision. But I, that was, you know, I remember that moment. And then even after I switched to manual reversion, when the jet wasn't climbing until I could get some, you know, I, the jet is now maneuvering as in I can maneuver it and it's responding to me, but I'm still not climbing. So until I dumped the ordinance off and it, I started get, to get away from the ground, um, you know, there was that fear that I would ha potentially have to eject, which is why my flight lead was so important in telling me go west because he wanted me to either get over the river or go over, get over the friendlies so that if I came down in a parachute, I would have a better chance of survival. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just in awe of the, the mental process of this whole thing. Um, do you kind of recognize, was there a moment of clarity in your thinking? Was there a sense where things start to fall in line, you know, like as you've trained? It did. I, you know, I, I had to rely on my training. I just, because it was just response. I didn't have, I really didn't even have time to think about it. I didn't have time to pull out a checklist. I didn't even have time to talk to my flight lead about what I should do. I just reacted and I did what I was trained to do. Um, and that's why that training that we go through is so important. Um, but it was, you know, the, you know, just getting out of Baghdad was a starting point. And I still had to fly an hour back to Kuwait. Yeah, I was going to mention that. It wasn't exactly like you just found some place on the uh, flat land to, to put the the aircraft down. You still had a long way home. Right. And we had several emergency checklists to go through. We didn't know what was going to work on the airplane and what wasn't. And I knew in the back of my mind that there was going to be a point where I had to make a decision about try to land the airplane or get it to friendly territory and eject. And um, that was a really tough decision. I will tell you, you know, after we went through the checklist, my flight lead, you know, rejoins on me and flies right up next to my airplane. This whole time, I have no idea what the damage looks like. I can't see anything. We've got mirrors in our cockpit that we can kind of angle back there, uh, but I can't see anything. I can't, I can only, I only have the indications inside my cockpit. And, uh, you know, he flies up alongside me and tells me, you've got hundreds of holes in your fuselage and tail and the hole about the size of a football in your right horizontal stabilizer. And that's my first indication of the, the extent of the damage that this airplane took. When you hear that, is it like, holy crap kind of moment? Or it's just like, okay, now... That's exactly. Okay, that's well, so exactly I didn't, I, but I didn't know if it gave you any more clarity on what to do, given you had a better idea of what the damage to the aircraft was. No, I mean, it, it gave me a better idea of what it looked like. But at the same time, I, you know, I'm really focusing on what my engine instruments are telling me, what my systems are telling me. And I also know I have an hour. I have an hour to get back to friendly territory, to think about this, to go through the checklist, to talk about it, um, and to think through it. And um, we did. We talked a lot about the options and, and what I could do and how the jet was flying, um, which was good because having an hour to fly and think about the po and to think about the possibility of crashing on landing, you know, I just needed to compartmentalize and really focus on the task at hand. 
Any an concern, hour is a long time to think. Sure. Well, I, I, then that leads to my next question that, you know, they didn't want you to eject over Baghdad or wanted you to eject into friend, where friendlies were so you had some protection. But in that long flight, like, you have no idea if you have to eject what's below you and who's there and anything. Do you have any of that information or? Um, we're, we, we got some of the information. We knew, we knew some things we had, uh, you know, at that point we, you know, our ground forces had already made it, made their way to Baghdad. So there was definitely forces out there on the ground, but our plan, um, at the time we had taken, um, Talil air base, um, okay. in, in Iraq and we had discussed trying to land there. Um, but quite honestly, it was a, it was a piece of concrete that we could land on. There was no emergency services. If I crashed, there was one fire truck. There was no hospital. And so we made the decision. We, we overflew that base and went all the way to Kuwait so that if I crashed on landing, there would be an ambulance, a fire truck. There would be hospitals that I could go to. Um, so we talked about all of those things. You know, those are things that we had to discuss as tough as they were. All right, take me to, I guess, the moment of truth, because, you know, at the end of the day, you still have to get the aircraft on the ground, right? That that may right. be, is that the most challenging thing as opposed to just getting out of Baghdad and getting the plane working again? Oh, the two totally different. I don't, I, it's, they're both incredibly challenging. I think I was, you know, one is a very quick decision and, and the other, you know, I had thought through and we had talked about. And so... I knew that that moment of coming in to land was probably going to be the toughest. And it was a really, it was a life or death decision about trying to land. I I know that, you know, there's part of me that said, well, I can just get this airplane to friendly territory and eject. And theoretically ejecting is fairly safe. And then I would have rescue helicopters that would pick me up. Um, but it's really hard to eject out of an airplane that feels, you know, I had flown it for an hour and I felt very comfortable with the way it was flying. We had gone through all the emergency checklists and I made the decision. My flight lead told me, you know, he said, uh, uh, Casey, my call sign said, Casey, it's, it's your call. It's a single seat fighter and I will back you up with the decision you make. Um, you know, there's part of me that wanted him to make the decision. It would have been a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I knew it. It's a single-seat fighter. It's my decision, and I made the decision based on that hour of flying that I was going to try to land it. Um, How difficult we, was the landing? Well, um, we, you know, Kuwait, standard dust storms that are that are associated with Kuwait and Iraq. We had some – the weather and visibility was a little bit rough, but – on the positive side, I could I, once I found the runway, the winds were down the runway. I had my flight lead very experienced with me, um, and uh, I knew we had gone through the checklist. My airplane was actually flying better once I got it configured, meaning the gear were down, and I slowed it down. It felt very comfortable flying it, um, but I knew it was still going to be very tough, and I had learned some lessons from um, pilots that had flown before me in manual reversion and desert storm, um, and not all of those landings were successful. And so I I remembered their stories. I remembered what they had been through. Um, and so I had some idea of what it could be like. And so uh, coming into land, I remember, you know, I remember, one, wanting to sound good and calm on the radio. Like, for whatever reason, I thought if I sound good on the radio and I sound calm, that somehow that will just make everything, uh, one, make everybody else believe that I'm calm and collected, uh, but two, just kind of set me in that mindset of I'm just going to do this just like normal, and uh, came into the the landing area um, right over the underrun, which is the first part of the runway. 
um, the airplane gets into what's called ground effect. And that was probably the one moment where I thought that I was potentially going to, that the airplane would roll over on its back and that I might have to eject um, because I caught kind of this ground effect and the airplane just did this quick roll. And I was able to counteract that with my stick and then just put the airplane on the ground, uh, power on, on the ground, kind of Navy landing um, but it didn't matter to me. For me, I was once those wheels hit the ground, it was a tremendous feeling of relief. Okay, so I was just going to ask that. Like when the faint, when the when the aircraft finally stops, is that when you just oh, exhale? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes, I completely exhale. I am like, thank God, I am on the ground. And then my flight lead from above, who hasn't landed yet, says, "Hey, Casey, it's a, you can stop the jet now because the jet's still rolling. I haven't stopped." Oh, really? <laughs> uh, but I'm so I'm so relieved to be on the ground that you know I'm just happy to let it roll because to me that's better than any anything else I could have done at this point. Um, and so I'm, I have to use our emergency braking system, which is only five brake applications because of all the hydraulics are gone. Uh, but it was able to get the jet stopped, a nice long runway, and. Uh, and then the the crash uh, and rescue team came out to the uh, jet to meet me. Unreal! Like I, I'm just the tense moments in that whole experience. I, it's it's just hard to process. Um, so you step out of the aircraft and you look at it. What is your first reaction? Uh, I'm in shock. Actually, I mean it's dripping because there's hydraulic fluid everywhere. Um, what I didn't know at the time was there a fire, the back of the airplane had caught fire. So the whole back of the oh airplane is charred. Um, you know, I, my flight lead on the way back had asked me a couple questions about my engine. Um, and I kept thinking, why do you keep asking? My engine is fine. I've got a hydraulic problem, not an engine problem. Well, good on him. He wasn't telling me the things that I, you know, didn't need to know about things like the airplane is pieces of the airplane are coming apart in flight. But I did see that when I landed and I recognized, you know, why he was asking me certain questions because there were, you know, holes in the airplane, pieces of the skin of the airplane had come off and the engine has got shrapnel all over the place. Um, and it just kept flying, which is um, amazing. I mean, it's just, I, I am incredibly thankful to the people that designed and built that airplane because it just <laughs> flew exactly like it was supposed to. I mean, good. the A-10 was designed to take hits while supporting our troops on the ground, and it did. Good old American taxpayer awesome. dollars for everybody. <laughs> um, Absolutely. What is the next flight for you like, and how quickly do you get back up in an aircraft? Uh, so on a positive side, I, th- I, uh, I ended up flying the next day. Really? Um, I was, yeah, I was sitting combat search and rescue alert. So that's another one of our missions that we would do. And so we weren't tasked to fly. We were just tasked to sit, uh, CSAR combat search and rescue alert. And, um, we usually means we sleep most of the day and relax. Um, but on this day, um, an A-10, we got the word that an A-10 had been shot down right up back in Baghdad where I was. And it was just, it was reaction at this point. Um, we ran to the jets, we got into the jets, got them started and took off as fast as we could trying to gather the information about the pilot, where he had gone down and what, you know, where the rescue helicopters were going to be, how he would meet them, how he would pick them up. And so we were just, it was all just reaction and movement and trying to get information. And about 30 minutes into uh, Iraq, we got a call saying that we could turn around because he had been picked up. Um, he had been picked up by uh, actually American troops on the ground that had watched his airplane go down into the ground, um, and they picked him up. But I will tell you, you know, uh, it was probably the best thing that could have happened. You know, get back in the airplane, 
didn't have a lot of time to think about it, just react. And, you know, quite honestly, I knew those guys, the CSAR guys were there for me the day before, and they would have come pick me up. And so there was no doubt in my mind that we were going to go do the same for him. You were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross uh, for your efforts in landing the plane and obviously, you know, the close air support that you provided. Um, How quickly does that happen, and what was your reaction to being told that you were awarded uh, the medal? Uh, You know, it was a couple months later. Um, that we um, that we got word about the Distinguished Flying Cross. And, I mean, it's an incredible honor. It's, it's incredibly humbling because if you look at the people that were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and the things they, done, they have done to get it, I just, you know, for me, I felt like I was doing my job. That was what we do. We support the troops on the ground, and sometimes it means that pilots take, you know, risks to do that. Um, and, and But it's an incredible honor. But I will tell you, the thing that means the most to me is, um, I have a couple notes, and one is written on a napkin, and it says, uh, thanks for saving our ass over Baghdad. And to me, like, that is what it's about, more than anything. I, I, I don't know why I want to return to this, but I kind of just, you know, in doing the research on your experience and everything else, you know, did anybody at all at any point in time question your aptitude because you were a female or look at you differently or anything else? I mean, you, you said you didn't get any of it earlier on. Has any of that ever circled back in your career at all? You know, I've gotten a lot of questions about it, certainly. Um, and I, I think, you know, people are always are wondering what it was like, you know, what's it like to fly a fighter as a female? And, you know, for me, I, I don't know any different. I mean, I sound different on the radio, that's for sure. Uh, it's a little harder to go to the bathroom in the airplane. Uh, you know, there are things like that. But in, in all reality, you know, we're, um, it, I just, you know, these are the guys that I deployed with. I mean, we went to combat together. I mean, you know, it, they're yeah. my brothers. Sure. And uh, we will, you know, we'll do anything for each other. And I just, I think if you are competent, and credible in the airplane, then the rest takes care of itself. Makes sense. Um, obviously, you're still serving all these years later, currently an instructor at the Air Force Academy. Um, you, you never any thoughts about going in a different direction in life? This is what you love? This is what you always want to do? No, this is absolutely what I love. I've loved being an A-10 pilot. I just, uh, I have flown my entire career. I just finished up um, another, um, some time flying in the airplane at Davis Monthan Air Force Base where we train A-10s to be, or A-10 pilots to be A-10 pilots. And, um, you know, that's our first experience flying. And I feel like I have a lot to share, a lot to learn, you know, a lot to share from what I've learned in my career. And I have enjoyed teaching other uh, pilots. And, and now I'm at the Air Force Academy teaching cadets and talking to them about what it's like to, to go to combat, what it, what warrior ethos means and, and, uh, you know, setting them up for success as they go out the door as second lieutenants. I don't mean to put you on the spot with this question, but um, as you're teaching these young cadets and they go through, like, is the lore of Colonel Campbell and her experience talked about much by the cadets at, uh, at the academy? Uh, so we, we talk quite a bit in class about, I get to share my combat experiences and, uh, they, uh, they, uh, have definitely asked multiple times to share my war story with them. And I, and I will absolutely share because I, I learned a lot from it and it's, you know, it, it's who, it made me who I am today. And I think as a cadet, I never imagined that, you know, you could, I couldn't have fathomed nine 11 and the changes that would happen to our world, but you know, you don't think about the impact that you can make and the things that you will be asked to do. And so I think it's important to share those stories. And I think you'll learn a lot from them. Is that the defining moment of your career? And if not, what is? 
Um, you know, I think it certainly changed my view on life. It changed, um, you know, it, it cemented my love for the airplane. That's for sure. Uh, and it really just, I think I felt very attached to the mission of close air support and flying the A-10. And so that, that's really what led me to stick with it and, uh, you know, change my career path from the one that I had originally planned. When this whole thing is over, did you ever think about the letter that you were made to write and go, um, actually kind of glad I wrote that letter because we were darn close. Yeah. I, you know, I was, uh, you know, there's those things that you think you'll never use, you know, your um, some of the, the survival situations and training and things that we've been in. And I was, I was glad that I had done them all. I was glad I didn't need to use them, but I was, I felt prepared if I needed to. Um, but yeah, thank God I didn't have to read those letters. Where was your husband? My, my family didn't have to read right. those letters. Where was your husband while this mission was going on? And when did you get a chance to talk to him about it? Uh, he was also deployed, um, on the ground at the time he was not flying. And, um, my squadron commander actually had me call my parents and my husband that day, um, it was the, in the early ages of digital cameras and email. Um, and I personally did not want to call my parents because I just didn't want them to worry. Right. Um, but he had me call them and uh, talk to them, which is good because my dad, being an academy grad, got some digital pictures the very next day oh, uh, really? of my airplane <laughs> and knew what happened. But my husband, because where he was, uh, I could talk to him on a secure phone and talk about what happened. And, um, you know, he was asleep at the time and got a... I had, uh, when I had called, he was asleep. And so I left a note with his Intel officer and said, Hey, can you just tell him that I'm okay? And he, he had known what had happened. So the note that he left for him sitting on his computer said, Hey, your wife got head over Baghdad. She's okay. Give her a call. So Very that's how he fact. found out. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's a, whoever left that note probably got a stern talking to after the fact. Yeah. He's just, yeah. You know, instead of just, Hey, call your wife, you know, would have been, would have been sufficient <laughs> at that point in time. I'll let you fill in the rest of the details. Wow. Yeah. So you're you're over 20 years now. Um, is this something you'll do as long as the Air Force will let you, or do you have a, a kind of end in sight in what you want to do next? Oh, that's the big that's the big decision. We're not sure yet. We've uh, my husband and I are both active duty. We have young kids, and so we're trying to make decisions that are right for our family. And uh, we we've decided we take it one assignment at a time, and that's uh, the best way to go about it. Well, ma'am, it's just an unreal story. Like I, I'm still nervous in just recounting all of it with you. And everything that you had to go through, but uh, certainly you, you, you've had an incredible career. You've downloaded all this experience and have passed it on, which is amazing. Um, you know your leadership and everything else. I think is uh, impeccable as far as uh, what you've been able to provide uh, the next generation of the Air Force and the military. And we just we can't thank you enough for being part of the Hazard Ground and sharing your story. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Colonel Kim Campbell, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right, thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.